Good morning. I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. There are some things that we would never attempt to do alone, no matter how strong we thought we, uh, we, thought we were. Uh, last December, Cherry and I took a trip to California for our 10th anniversary, and while we were there, we had the privilege of uh, attending a 49er Chicago Bear game as uh, Ron and Sharon Hadley's guests. Um, my wife happens to be a Bear fan, having grown up in Chicago, and I'm a 49er fan, having grown up in California. And to my delight, uh, the Niners uh, shut them out 41 to nothing, uh, to my delight and to Cherry's uh, dismay. But uh, one of the interesting things is that I noticed when Joe Montana walked up to the line to take the snap from the center, uh, he didn't shake. His knees stood still. He wasn't quivering as he thought about the mass of weight uh, just in the refrigerator, William Perry on the other side of the, of the ball let alone uh, four other uh, defensive linemen that were staring him down, wanting to take him down as quickly as, as they could. The reason that he wasn't afraid is because he had an offensive line standing in front of him whose aim and objective was to keep him from getting killed. Uh, I uh, uh, don't hesitate to say that he probably would not have walked up to the line to take the snap had his offensive line not been there. There are some things that we would just not try and do alone no matter how strong we are or think we are. Uh, Rock climbing or rappelling uh, is another example. Uh, My daughter and I did a little rappelling last summer, and uh, it was frightening for both of us, walking off the edge of that cliff, realizing that we had to let the rope take us all the way to the bottom. Fortunately, there was someone else up at the top holding on to the safety line to make sure that just in case our, our grip slipped, we would not fall more than just a couple of feet. We wouldn't try that alone. Uh, nor would you put yourself in the hands of a physician for surgery if he didn't have uh, a team of uh, doctors and nurses assisting him. Uh, there's simply strength and wisdom in numbers. A couple of months ago, I, I drove home from work at the end of, of the day and as is my custom, I got out of the car and I walked up to the mailbox to get the mail. And as I was making my way to the box, uh, a large, very large, very, very large black Labrador retriever came out from next door. And he was mad at me. And I'm not quite sure why, but he was barking and he was snipping at me. And, and he was just a matter of a few inches away. And I would have been content to have left the mail in the box just to be able to get back in, in the house. But uh, he, he wasn't happy to have me move in either direction. So I just kind of stood still, and I, I said, shoo, doggy, shoo, doggy. <laughs> that didn't work. And uh, fortunately, just about that time, my neighbor pulled up across the street and got out of his car, and he saw what was going on, and he walked toward me. And then his wife got out of the car and walked toward me. And suddenly there were three of us, and this dog started to think. And he put his tail between his legs, and he went home. And I was safe and sound, thankfully. Uh, There is strength in numbers, and there's wisdom in numbers. Um, Some of you men have had the the, uh, pleasure, uh, the real experience of helping your wife through childbirth. And uh, that was my experience with our three kids. And frankly, I don't know what I would have done had Sherry not been there to help me through it. (laughs) 
There, there is strength in numbers and wisdom in numbers. We made it, fortunately. We live in a culture, though, that uh, applauds self-sufficiency and independence, a culture that says you can do it on your own. Uh, be all that you can be. And we've got slogans and we've got uh, catchwords and bywords that encourage us to just try and make it on our own, to suck it up and uh, make it through life. And dependence on anyone or anything is really viewed by our culture as a sign of weakness. Dependence is weakness in our world. And unfortunately, that attitude has crept into the church as well uh, in subtle ways, but uh, it's here nonetheless. There are some of us that uh, are content to uh, just be involved in the large gathering of the body on Sunday mornings. And uh, attendance here is, is all we think we need. Uh, we believe that uh, me and Jesus, that's enough. We can make it without the involvement of other people in our lives. And the point that Paul is going to make in, in the passage that we're going to look at today is that that is just simply untrue. It's wrong. We need one another. God has created us. He's designed us as social, social creatures. We have been uniquely designed to relate to him and to one another in the context of dependence and in a relationship of dependence. That's Paul's concern uh, when he comes to chapter 5 of the book of Galatians. I'd like to begin reading in uh, verse 25 of chapter 5 on down through verse 10 of chapter 6. Paul writes this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each of you shall bear his own load. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, Paul picks up this idea. He begins with this idea of walking. This is a familiar theme for Paul. We saw it in the book of Ephesians. Uh, in the last three chapters, he picks up different topics and commands, introducing them each with the idea of walking, walking in love, walking in the Spirit. Uh, he does the same thing here in Galatians. You'll notice verse 16 of chapter 5 is very similar to verse 25. In verse 16... <clears throat> Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And in verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Very similar, at least uh, in our English translations. 
There are actually two different words that Paul employs here that are translated with the one English word, walk. The walk that Paul is thinking of in verse 16 of chapter 5 is an individual walk. He's saying that we as individual Christians ought to walk in the Spirit. We ought to depend upon the Spirit of Christ to empower us and to give us the wisdom we need to make decisions in life. The walk that he refers to in verse 25 is a corporate walk. He's saying, let's walk together. The word that he uses is actually a term that uh, came out of the military in the first century. It's the Greek word stoikeo. Uh, And when a commander would ask his troops to stoikeo, they would quickly line up. It's like ten hut in the army today. And the men run out and they line up and they get ready in their formations for their maneuvers. Uh, David Roper uh, has told a story before of a trip that he took to Athens uh, several years ago, and he was walking down the street one day, and he overheard uh, a teacher yelling from the playground, Stoikeo, Stoikeo. And the children from all parts of the, of the uh, schoolyard ran toward the teacher, and they lined up in a single line so that the teacher could take a role. This, this is the same word that Paul is using here, in verse 25, and the idea is simply this. He's saying, let's line up together as a part of God's family. Let's lock arms and let's lock step and let's begin to move together in unison as a team, as one unit. Now, he's not, he's not suggesting that we should all be alike, that we should all do the same thing, that we should all have the same gifts. He's simply saying that we're a part of a team or a family, as we sang about earlier. The opposite of that, the antithesis of verse 25 is found in the next verse. The contrast, verse 26. Let us not become boastful. Boastfulness grows out of conceit, and conceit leads to self-assertion and selfishness. Uh, He says, let us not become challenging. When we challenge one another or provoke one another, uh, we begin to compare ourselves with others. We begin to play the game of one-upmanship. I can do this better than you can. Or look where you're at compared to me. He says, nor should we envy one another. And envy or jealousy uh, result in greed and divisions and factions. They separate people rather than bring people together. Paul's point is simply this, that the greatest hindrance to unity in the body is an attitude of independence and selfishness. And when we focus on ourselves and our own personal needs rather than on the needs of others, we begin to drop arms. Instead of being locked in arms and walking in unison, we drop our arms and we begin to head in separate directions. Paul says that we're to walk together as a family, as a team. And he fleshes that out for us in the verses that follow, verses 1 through 6. And there are three key commands in those six verses uh, that I'd like you to note. The first is in verse 1. Paul says that we're to restore one another. Verse 2, Paul says that we're to bear one another's burdens. And in verse 6, Paul says that we're to share in all good things or share good things with him who has instructed us. Those are the three key pegs that will hang the the rest of the text on. Uh, 
Let's look at this first idea of restoring one another. I'd like to uh, remind you of a parable that Jesus taught. It was the parable of the, uh, the shepherd in Luke 15 who had 100 sheep and noticed that one was missing. And I suppose it was customary in those days for shepherds at some point during the day to take account of their sheep and to make sure that one hadn't strayed away. On this particular day, a shepherd learned that one of the sheep uh, was gone, and he left the 99 in search for the one, found it, uh, picked it up, put it over its shoulders, and carried him back to the flock. And then he threw a party. He called all of his friends together, and they rejoiced because the one that was lost was found and had been rescued. The point of Jesus' uh, parable is the same as the point of the, the song that the quartet sang earlier, is that God delights when one person who has strayed away is brought back into the fold because each of us are valuable to God. Each of us are loved by him. He's concerned when any of us begin to move uh, away from him. Unfortunately, that isn't always the attitude that we have. Um, Chuck Swindoll has said that Christians are sometimes... uh, the only people who will march over their wounded en route to battle. Uh, It's unfortunate, but that's true. Sometimes we'll see a brother or a sister who has fallen and struggling, and rather than stopping to try and lift them up, dust them off, and help them begin moving in that direction, the same direction again, uh, we'll just walk right by them, step right over them. Paul says that shouldn't be the case. The first thing he says that we're to do is to restore a brother. And there are three observations I'd like to make about verse 1. The first is the word is caught. Notice he says, even if a man is caught in any trespass. It wasn't until this last week that as I was studying through this passage, I noticed that the word is the word uh, in English and in the original language as well is put in the passive voice, which means that this action happens to him. He doesn't do the action himself. I've always read the verse and thought that Paul meant, well, if a man chooses to sin, go after him. That's not what Paul says. He says that if a man finds himself enslaved or entrapped or caught up, the word can also be translated overtaken or surprised. If a man finds himself suddenly hung up in sin, go after him. What that suggests to me, Paul is not saying that if a man willfully sins, you leave him alone. Understand that. But what he's suggesting here is that sin is something that we don't usually choose uh, to do uh, if we think about the consequences. If we think about the consequences of sin, we will usually stop short of doing it. Paul's suggesting here that, that the nature of sin is that it surprises us. It almost happens accidentally or inadvertently. Let me give you an example. You're home um, with your husband or wife, and it's been a long day, and uh, you're tired, and you're irritable, and you're just feeling ornery, uh, and you're hoping that everyone in that house is going to leave you alone and let you rest. And all of a sudden, your husband or wife says something to you that's unkind or critical, or even hints at being one of those two. What's your first reaction? Well, I'll be honest with you. My first reaction 
is to climb all over my wife, to say something really quick and really terse, and then regret it later. And you know, that almost happens in a split second. It almost happens before I can grab the words back and put them back in my mouth. Because sin is like that. Sin is easy to commit. It's just like falling off a log. It's very easy. Let me give you another example. Uh, you find yourself in an embarrassing situation at work. Uh, you've, you've really blown something, and uh, the boss hears about it, or a coworker hears about it, and uh, uh, it would be so easy to save face, to save the embarrassment of it, by simply, you know, stretching the truth a little bit, or changing, telling a little white lie, suggesting that it was someone else's problem, or uh, you know, you really weren't at fault. And in order to save face, you tell a lie, and pretty soon the story begins to spread. And pretty soon, you're in a situation where you either have to say, I lied, I was wrong, it was really my fault, or you have to perpetuate the lie. And suddenly, we're ensnared in sin. We're caught in it. And it almost happened accidentally. It wasn't something that we intended to do that morning when we went to work. Or let me give you another example. Let's suppose that your husband or wife is ignoring you. And uh, they won't talk, and you're lonely, uh, and you're just crying out inside, wanting to have someone at home that will love you and care for you. You find yourself working, uh, and there's someone at work that not only gives you the time of day, but they're interested in you. They want to pursue a friendship. And it all begins very innocently, a meeting at the water cooler, a luncheon, and almost inadvertently, before you know it, one decision has been made that crossed that line and you're entrapped in sin. Sin is like that. Paul likens it here to a, a snare that a hunter would, would set up in the forest, just waiting for an animal or a bird to come along and get caught in it. In fact, in Second Timothy, Paul says that the one who sets up the trap is the devil. Satan loves to set a trap for us um, and watch us step right into it and then close it around us. The lure of sin is very subtle, and it's often hard to recognize until after we're entrapped and after we're enslaved. And Paul says when that happens, when we see it happening to someone else, we need to get involved. We need to, to reach out and try and restore a brother. And that's the second observation I'd like to make about verse 1. Paul uses an interesting word uh, that's translated restore here. It's a word that, that was used in two uh, walks of life in his day. It was used in the fishing industry and in the medical community. In the fishing industry, it was used to describe what, uh, what fishermen would do in the afternoons uh, after they had been out uh, fishing and they had come home or come back to shore and learned that some of their nets were beginning to break. They would begin to sew them back together. They would mend their nets, a very laborious, tedious job, but very necessary because the nets were ineffective if they had holes in them. Paul says that we're to restore a brother, and in, in a very real sense, it's, it's helping someone whose life has begun to come unraveled. 
The second uh, use of the word was from the medical community. Uh, it was used to describe what a physician would do in setting a broken bone. Some, several of us, probably most of us, have had broken bones before. I used to jam and break my fingers all the time when I was younger. Uh, I was a catcher in Little League, and I could never seem to remember to catch the ball with the mitt instead of my hand. I'd always grab it with my hand and end up breaking fingers. Uh, and if you've been to a doctor before with a broken bone, you know that what you want in a good physician is care, gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, compassion. You don't want a doctor to grab your hand or your arm and start jerking it around. You want them to be very careful. And they usually are. They'll very carefully take an an x-ray, see what's wrong, and then begin to move to meet the need. Paul is saying here that this process of restoring is a process of repairing or curing someone who's fallen into sin. And the idea is that What is needed uh, is to replace something that's ineffective in their life with something that is effective so that they can begin to produce or so they can begin to walk in step again. It suggests an attitude uh, that we ought to have as we seek to help someone who's in sin. Uh, We need to be patient. We need to be tactful and tender, just like the physician that we want to to have treat us when we're hurt. And that's why Paul says that we're to do it with a spirit of gentleness. Uh, Actually, it means a spirit of meekness from a non-defensive posture. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. We're just trying to help someone who's fallen down, to help lift them up. You'll notice in verse 1 there are two other prerequisites. Paul says that we are to do it if we're spiritual And by that he means that we're to make sure that we're walking with Christ ourselves and trusting him to produce his fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, in us. And we're to do it with one eye on them and one eye on us. We're to to be looking at our own life as well. It's the same point that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 7 when he said that if we're going to seek to take a speck out of our brother's eye, we need to first take the log out of our own. We need to examine our own life. Uh, and make sure that we're not struggling in the same area or make sure that there isn't some unconfessed sin, uh, an area uh, from which we haven't uh, asked God to release us. Now, the third observation that I'd like to make about verse 1 concerns who is to do this. Uh, Our our tendency usually uh, when we see someone hurting is to think, now, who can I call to get help to that person? Are are there any elders available? How about we call the elders? Or uh, how about we call some of the pastors? Or uh, how about a good Christian psychologist? There's some here in town. You know, refer them to to one of those people. But notice the first word in verse 1 is not uh, elder or pastor or psychologist, but it's brethren or sistren. Paul says uh, that all of us are to get involved. It's everybody's job. Now, we're, not, we're not a spiritual SWAT team. Uh, the Board of Elders are not a spiritual SWAT team that are to be called out when someone's in trouble. Uh, but we're fellow believers. We're brothers. 
of yours. And we're all in this together. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but we ought to think about ourselves in this body as a team, a rescue team, a rescue operation that should be ready at any moment for a call from someone who's in trouble that we can reach out to, that we can go rescue. Why is it that we don't think of ourselves that way? Why is it that we shy away from getting involved when someone's in trouble? Well, I'd like to suggest at least three obstacles, three reasons why we don't. I'm I'm sure there are more, but these are just three that came to mind. The first is fear. We're just afraid. Most of us don't like confrontation. We don't like to be confronted. We don't like to confront others. We just shy away from it. Um, Fear of being misunderstood. Fear of having our motives questioned. Fear of losing a relationship. If our help falls on a deaf ear. We're just afraid. It's scary. It's a risky business. And sometimes our fear renders us ineffective, debilitates us, keeps us from doing what God wants us to do. A second obstacle, I think, is, is the feeling of inadequacy. We look at our own lives, and we, and we recognize that none of us are perfect. We recognize that, that we're all flawed, that we're all marred with sin ourselves, that we may be struggling or we may have struggled in the same area that, that this brother or sister are struggling in. We begin to ask questions like, uh, who am I to offer advice? I'm not credentialed. I don't have any special training. And then Satan begins to play these games with us. Uh, Remember the old Fred Flintstone cartoons where the good Fred Flintstone would appear next to this here and the bad one would appear here and you'd have two messages going back and forth and the bad one had the the pitchfork. Well, in, in in a sense... Satan begins to do that. He whispers these thoughts in our ear like, who are you? You don't have your life in order. Look what you did last week. Look, the way, look at the way you treated your, uh, your son or your daughter. Look at the way you and your spouse get along. And it begins to cause us to just feel crippled and unable to do anything. Crippled with the feeling of inadequacy. A third obstacle is that it just doesn't feel right, and it never does. It just doesn't feel right to try and intrude, to try and butt in, to try and meddle where we're not welcome. And those are the feelings we have. We feel like we're butting into someone's life, trying to help them straighten up a a private area that uh, we haven't been asked to help them with. And it's terribly uncomfortable. So I think the reason that we avoid getting involved is because we're afraid, we're inadequate, and we don't want to meddle where we haven't been invited. Unfortunately, Paul doesn't say in verse 1, wait until you're invited to help someone. He doesn't say, wait until you feel adequate to help someone. He doesn't say, wait until you're full of courage to help someone. He just says, get involved. I want to suggest a couple scenarios. Try these out. 
Um, you're walking down the street one day, and you notice uh, a good friend of yours who is standing on the curb about to walk into the street, unaware that there's an oncoming truck that will certainly hit him. What do you do? Do you say, oh, gosh, I don't want to intrude. I don't want to bother him. I don't want to pry into his his personal life. He hasn't really asked me to help him. Or maybe you say, well, I stepped out on the street once and I lived. Maybe he'll live too. No, you cry out as loud as you can, as loud as you can. Look out, there's a truck coming. Or if he's close enough, you go out and grab him and throw him out of the way so he doesn't get clobbered. Or how about you wake up in the middle of the night and it seems terribly light outside. You're not sure why. It's still the middle of the night. And you look out the window and you notice that the house across the street's on fire. What's, what do you do? There are friends in that house. Well, you probably call the fire truck. What else do you do? What if you begin to wonder, do they know there's a fire in there? Gosh, maybe I ought to go wake them. Make sure the smoke doesn't uh, get them. So you throw on a bathrobe, you run across the street, and you begin pounding on the door. Anyone in there? Anyone in there? There's no answer. What do you do? Well, gosh, if they wanted me here, they'd probably let me in. I don't, I don't want to butt in where I'm not welcome. I don't want to barge in. Fire truck will probably be here soon. No, you don't do that. You gather up every bit of courage and adrenaline you've got and you kick the door down just like they do on TV and you run upstairs and you search every room and if there's someone there, you pick them up and you carry them out before the smoke kills them. That's how we ought to think about sin because sin is deadly. Sin is dangerous. And it's just as harmful to be ensnared in sin as it is to be in a burning house or to be stepping in front of a Mack truck. And I think the reason we don't get involved is because we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that sin kills and destroys. We're part of a rescue team. And we need to respond when we see someone in danger. Well, the second thing Paul says the second way he fleshes out this idea of walking arm-in-arm and step-in-step is in verse 2. We're to bear one another's burdens. You notice the word burden occurs again in verse 5 where he says, and it almost appears to be a contradiction, let each one bear his own load. There it's translated load. The load that Paul refers to in verse 5 is the bearable load that everyone's been given. There are any freeloaders in the Christian life is what Paul is saying. We all have a bearable load that we have to to carry in this life. And one day we'll stand before God and be held accountable for it. But the load or the burden that he refers to in verse 2 is a different kind of a load. It's an unbearable load. It's a load that causes our knees to buckle, causes us to fall down out of rank, causes us to feel lifeless. It's the load that leads to depression, loneliness, It's the load that we need to come alongside someone 
with our shoulder and help them bear. That's what Paul is saying. Swindoll, in in his book on uh, this topic, says this. He said, What do fallen Christians need? Loving confrontation, understanding, encouragement, and companionship. They need someone who will stick by them and help them share their burden until the weight is reduced to a bearable level. We all need that. We all want it desperately. We need someone who can come along and help us get through the tough times. The problem is that, is that that's terribly difficult to do. It takes time. And again, we feel inadequate, particularly if the burden that someone else is bearing is a burden that we've never uh, had to carry ourselves. Someone loses a job that's a close friend. and Perhaps we've never lost a job before. We're not sure what they're going through. We don't know that they're feeling uh, insecure and worried, anxious about the finances. We don't know that they're perhaps feeling worthless because they don't have something to occupy themselves with and and a way to provide for their family. Perhaps we don't know that they'll uh, quite likely be depressed. So we're not sure what to do. Or perhaps a a friend loses a a loved one, a child, uh, to death. And that's never happened to us before. We're not quite sure how to respond. We don't know the the deep sense of loss that they're experiencing. We don't know the confusion that's going on, all the questions, the whys. Perhaps we don't know the anger they're feeling toward God about it. We're not sure how to respond, so we feel inadequate. Or maybe it's uh, a friend of yours is losing their marriage. Separation, divorce. And if that's never happened to you before, then you don't know what they're experiencing. You don't know the feelings of loneliness or, or the feelings of rejection. And you're not quite sure how to move in alongside and lend a shoulder to lift them up and to bear that burden with them because you feel inadequate. And what do we do when we feel inadequate? Nothing. Sometimes we pray, but we usually keep silent, hoping that the years that we've logged of friendship will get them through. But they don't. Our silence merely accentuates the, uh, the pain and the loneliness that they feel under the weight of that burden. It causes them to question, does anyone really care about me? It makes us feel more comfortable to keep quiet, but it doesn't help. It only hurts the situation. Paul is saying here we need to come alongside of a brother or a sister that's got an unbearable load. We need to help prop them up. We need to love them. We need to show compassion. We need to show understanding and support them with our words, with our actions. Rather than turning our backs on them, we need to help. You know, even the world recognizes the attractiveness of that when it's done. That's what that song was all about that uh, Paul and Kim sang. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. I'm not a real Neil Diamond fan, but I love that song because it says exactly what Paul says in this passage. 
And even the world recognizes it. Let me read the verses to you again. The road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. So on we go, his welfare is my concern. No burden is he to bear, we'll get there, eventually. Maybe not as soon as I had hoped, but we'll get there. And I know he he would not burden me or encumber me. He doesn't want to encumber me. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. If I'm laden, if I'm burdened at all, I'm, I'm laden with sadness that everyone's heart isn't filled with a gladness of love for one another. It's a long, long road from which there is no return. While we're on our way, why not share? And the load doesn't weigh me down at all. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. And we could add to that, he ain't heavy. She's my sister. Or she ain't heavy. She's my sister. We're all part of the family of God. We're all brothers and sisters. And this should be our attitude. Paul says when it is, the result is that we fulfill the law of Christ. That means we love others in the same way that he loved us. And that was his command. Now there's a real danger in getting involved like this. And the danger is pride. And it works in one of two ways. It works like this for the person trying to help. We begin to get involved, and suddenly we have this feeling of self-importance. I mean, there's an honest-to-goodness feeling of, of value that's derived when we try and help someone else. And Satan will try and turn that and twist it into pride, and we'll begin to make subtle comments in our minds like, isn't God lucky to have me on his team? Boy, what, what would God do without me? And we begin to compare ourselves with a brother or sister in need. And all the good things that we do are for naught. The other side of things is that sometimes when we're hurting, when we're honestly hurting, we're afraid to, to cry out. We're, just, we're afraid to cry help because we don't want to appear as if we need any help. We want to be adequate. We don't want to be needy. Mark Falkner was telling me uh, an incident that happened this last winter. Kay, uh, his wife, had whooping cough, and uh, uh, she had it for a couple of months. And one evening as they were home, she started to have a coughing spell and just couldn't stop coughing. And finally was gasping for air and starting to turn blue. And uh, they couldn't decide whether or not to pick up the phone and call 911. Finally, she recovered, and afterwards they talked about why it was so difficult for them to dial those three numbers. And the conclusion they came to is they didn't really want, they didn't want to really bother anybody. They didn't want to you know, have anyone uh, inconvenienced by their need. They didn't want to have to explain to the neighbors later what an ambulance was doing out in front of their house. And unfortunately, that's, that's the feeling that we have sometimes when we're really hurting, when we've got problems with our kids and we don't know how to handle them. We're, we're not sure where to turn. We're praying about it, but we're afraid to, to cry out, 
to ask a brother or a sister for help. We're afraid to call the church and ask for help. Or we're having problems in our marriage. We're just not sure how to deal with it. We don't know if it's something we're doing or something our spouse is doing. But we're afraid to to let anyone know that we, we have a need for fear that we'll be thought unkindly of, for fear that we'll be thought of as weak, which we are, inadequate, which we are, human beings, which we are. So instead, we just suck it up as best we can and and try and get through it, and oftentimes don't. Paul recognized that pride was was an obstacle, a danger, and that's why he writes in verses 3 through 5, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he's fooling himself. If we're trying to help a brother and we start to think, boy, I've got it all together, Paul says, we're fooling ourselves. Don't think that way. Or if a brother or sister are trying to help us and... uh, we don't want to accept the help that's extended because we're feeling proud. Paul says, don't, don't let it stop you. You're merely fooling yourselves. Instead, he says, let each one examine his own work. I like the way the NIV puts it. They say, they say test his own actions. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. Because if we each take an honest-to-goodness look at our life and see the frailty and the problems and the sin that we each have, then we're not going to compare ourselves with another brother that's hurting and feel better about who we are. We'll take an honest-to-goodness look at our life and we'll compare ourselves with the Lord, Jesus, and where he would like to have us at spiritually. And we'll each be crying out for his forgiveness and for his mercy and for his strength. There won't be any need for, for pride And if that isn't enough, Paul goes on and he says, and furthermore, each one of you, each one of us, will bear his own load. Ultimately, we'll all stand before God someday and have to account for those actions. Well, how do we examine ourselves? How do we test ourselves? This is going to sound like spiritual double talk, but I want to suggest that it's both possible and impossible at the same time. What I mean by that is that we can take a a good look at our lives, that's possible if we're focusing on the Lord, if we're reading the Word and we're praying, we're trying to center our lives on God. His Spirit will begin to put His finger on an area in our life that, that needs to be changed. He'll give us the desire to change and the power to change. That's possible to examine our life. But it's also impossible because none of us have completely pure motives. None of us can trust our conscience 100% of the time. Paul makes that point in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He says, I don't judge myself because I don't trust my motives. Paul recognized that there's a part of each of us that make it difficult for us to, to differentiate between truth and falsehood. So on one hand, it's possible to examine our own lives. On the other hand, it's impossible And that means that we need to get other people involved. We need other objective parties involved in helping us deal with our lives. 
We need to be involved in a relationship of accountability. If you're a man, you need to be tied in with another man, another brother in Christ that can be praying with you and for you and helping you examine your life and grow. If you're a woman, you need to have another woman to do the same. We hope to proliferate uh, our small group ministry here at Cole uh, because we need people involved in small groups, small accountability groups that can support one another and help one another grow in these areas. Well, finally, Paul says in verse 6, his third command, that we're to share all good things with him who teaches. And by that, Paul is referring to, uh, when he uses the phrase, the word, the one who has been taught the word, he's talking about counsel that restores. He's saying that when we've been restored or helped by someone else, then we need to share all good things with them. He's not talking about uh, financial uh, remuneration, but he's talking about a shared relationship. You see, I may help you today, but I may need your help tomorrow. You may help a brother today grow through an area of sin in their life, but tomorrow they may need you. It's a two-way street. We're dependent upon one another. And obviously that has to happen in the context of a relationship. You can't walk up to a stranger and confront them about an area of sin in their lives. So the context is so important. We need to be doing it, but we need to to know people before we can be doing it or to have it done with us. Finally, Paul concludes with a motivation. In verses 7 through 10, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The word mocked literally means outwitted. God will not be outwitted. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. We can't trick him. He's saying... For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. That is, frustration, defeat, a lack of joy, a sense of lifelessness, stunted growth. But on the other hand, the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. The harvest there will be a harvest of fruit, spiritual fruit and spiritual growth. Paul saying that God only brings about a harvest that's consistent with our planting, our sowing. If we plant according to the flesh, we're going to reap spiritual stuntedness. If we plant according to the spirit, we'll reap spiritual growth. And the way we plant is by doing what he's commanded us to do here, by getting involved in people's lives, helping them grow and allowing them to help you grow. Paul says, don't lose heart, don't give in, don't give up, don't despair, don't become faint in doing good, but make the most of every opportunity while you have it, because we're a family. We owe it to one another. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Romans 13, and in there, Paul said in in Romans 13, 8, that the only thing we ought to owe to one another is love. That's... uh, That's a debt that will never be retired. We always owe love to each other. And the way that we we fulfill that debt is by getting involved, pursuing one another, 
when someone's caught in sin. Lending a shoulder to help lift a burden when someone has one. Letting someone lean on you. And letting them reciprocate when you're in need. And if we do it, God will make out of us a family. A family that can change this community. Jesus said, They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Boise and Treasure Valley will know that we are followers of Christ if we get involved. If we begin to lock arms and lockstep and walk like a family. Solomon summed summed it up like this in Ecclesiastes 4. He said, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who's alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We can either be a church of several hundred strands, each doing our own thing, or we can be a church that's united with strands that are wrapped around one another that are inseparable with our concern and our love for one another. I'd prefer to see the latter, and I know the Lord would as well. Let's pray, shall we? Father, rekindle in us a commitment to be a family, to treat each other with love and with respect, even during the difficult times. Help us to have the courage to relate to one another like this, the courage to to confront a brother or a sister when there's sin in their lives, when, when they're in a house that's burning. Give us the wisdom to know how to go about that. Help us to lend a shoulder and lighten one another's load. Father, equip us for a ministry of mutual accountability. And Father, if if we dare to obey, I pray that you would use this pattern of life to impress and to draw others into your kingdom. Amen.